0: Welcome to the YVR Screen Scene Podcast. I'm your host, Sabrina Firminger. My mission is to pull back the curtain on Vancouver's film and television industry and expose its beating heart, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom style, by getting deep and down and a little dirty with the actors and filmmakers and other talented artists who do the work. Capital T. I haven't whispered that before. It sounds very foreboding, like capital W.
1: I'm mostly just impressed that you actually say that every time. I've heard that and just assumed it was a recording that you you, repurposed. And
0: did you know that I I actually mime holding the beating heart?
1: Just like Temple of Doom. I love that.
0: It helps me get in the mood. Okay, so I am going to uh, welcome you, Kevin Eastwood, to the YVR Screen Scene Podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Okay, so let me... You said you listened. you know oh, I sorry. say all these words first? Okay, come on. <clears throat> Kevin Eastwood is a truth teller. Or more, maybe more succ- succinctly... Why is succinctly so hard to say? Maybe more succinctly, Kevin Eastwood is a documentary filmmaker and producer who uses all of the tools in his well-stocked documentarian's toolkit to elevate and amplify the true stories of people who have faced and continue to face harrowing situations so in other words truth teller kevin was the director and executive producer of emergency room life and death at vgh an award-winning documentary series about the public healthcare system he was the director for the documentaries after the sirens about the epidemic of ptsd among paramedics and the death debate about the landmark carter versus canada supreme court case on physician-assisted dying He spent a year traveling through rural Saskatchewan for Humboldt, the new season, about the aftermath of the April 2018 bus crash that killed 16 junior hockey players and injured 13. Kevin's work often deals with grief, trauma, mental health and survival. In his work, we see how the system fails us. We see how we can tear down systems and build ones that better serve our needs. We see the wells of strength that we can find in ourselves and each other when you think that every last bit of strength is gone. Some of Kevin's work is difficult to watch. All of it is handled with sensitivity and leaves the viewer changed in some profound way. Kevin has also directed music videos and produced art documentaries and environmental films and comedy features. Hide and Modern, a feature-length film about iconic artist Robert Davidson recently won the most popular Canadian documentary at the 2019 Vancouver International Film Festival and he's currently at work on an as-yet-unnamed four-part historical documentary series that tells the early history of British Columbia and is based on historical texts from multiple perspectives including Indigenous, British, European, Asian, and American. So today I want to talk about documentary because you're the first documentary filmmaker we've had here. I want to talk about the responsibility that Kevin feels as he casts his lens on people in dire situations. And I want to talk about the joys and challenges of creating documentary in Canada, because frankly, I think Canadians are so skilled and so far beyond in this particular form of storytelling. So... Now you may speak, Kevin. <laughs> Thank you so much for having <laughs> Welcome me. Welcome to the YVR Screen Scene Podcast.
1: I feel very honored to be the first documentarian on, yeah. on the podcast. That's
0: a big responsibility.
1: I know. I'm going to blow it.
0: <laughs> uh, did I get anything wrong? No. I mean, I'm was... worried about truth a lot in this particular episode. So uh, did, do you feel that I held up a mirror and reflected back? That was probably truth? the
1: best biography I've I ever heard of myself I'm gonna hire you from henceforth to write mine because that was you that can was just I, I
0: literally will give you the word document you can you can cut and paste.
1: I might take you up on that.
0: Okay, so truth, truth telling, responsibility. Um, I'm not even sure where to start with you which I so maybe we should let, that's where we should start as a documentary filmmaker, where do you start? Because I know in the narrative film realm, you know, you go into a project and you pretty much have to block out all your shots. You know exactly the story that you're going to tell. But in the documentary world, I'm assuming you you when you start, you don't know where you get end up.
1: You you shouldn't. That's usually what makes it more <laughs> interesting. But I think I'll, what I'll do is answer a different question, which is how I got into documentary, which might illuminate some of that was like how like you actually. Question. Oh, I've I've messed up the order. Oh my
0: god, you're totally doing the documentarian thing already. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but I mean, for I actually started in the narrative world. I I spent the first seven years of my career as a producer at Anagram Pictures, which was a which was a dedicated. Feature film production company. They only did dramatic feature films, didn't yeah. touch documentaries. And um, I always loved documentary. When I went to film school, I would always alternate each year between doing an end of year assignment as a doc and as a an, uh, dramatic film. Oh, okay. um, but when I was at Anagram, that just wasn't an option. But um, in those years, we shared office space with Screen Siren Pictures, Trish Dolman's company. Right. And so I got to know Trish. And um, she had been trying to get a feature documentary about Paul Watson, the the iconic environmental activist, the, the head of the Sea Shepherd organization, uh, made. So... I was always very interested in that, that was actually an idea that I had always wanted to pursue. Mm-hmm. When I had finished film school, I had like a short list of films that I wanted to make and one of those to, was to make a documentary about Paul Watson. So Trish beat me to the punch in terms of getting his his life <laughs> rights and his access, but um, when I kind of stepped away from Anagram, that was the first project I uh, went to work on. and. You know, I was coming at it with not any real professional documentary experience yet. I'd made like three dramatic feature films and a TV movie and a few other things. But I hadn't actually worked in the doc world uh, at, a, at that level. And it, it opened my eyes. It blew me away. I remember yeah. on one of our first shoots, we were in Santiago, Chile, where the International Whaling Commission was having its annual meeting that year. And the hotel we were at, which was some fancy hotel, like a conference center, it was besieged with protesters and I was in the middle of it at one point and trying to film the action and then this this massive mobile um, armed personnel carrier pulled up and wow. basically all the armed guards piled out and started arresting people and they weren't touching me because they perceived me as media, right. but I was just in the middle of this melee that was unfolding and I remember it just kind of hit me. I'm like, wow, this is the difference between making a movie and living a movie. Yeah. And from that point on, I was hooked. I just, I love the opportunity to actually meet the characters that I'm putting on a screen. I, I still love making dramatic films as well. And I kind of try to alternate back and forth. But um, I remember when I was young, I used to always be frustrated that I couldn't meet uh, Indiana Jones when I first realized that mm. like, oh, in, like I, I love this guy. This is a great character. I want to meet him. And then... And oh, Harrison Ford, as cool as Harrison Ford is, he isn't Indiana Jones. And right. that was always a bit of a disappointment to my, my 12-year-old self. Um, That's
0: actually very profound and very um, very telling as well. Like you wanted Indiana Jones to be real and you wanted to be there sharing his, his story. So, I mean, I, I didn't think we were gonna talk about thrill-seeking, but was that a part of it, especially in the early years for you?
1: Well, only in so much as that, like, the, the thrill is to getting to meet these characters that you're putting on a screen. You're still telling stories, yeah. and it's still a narrative. And it's just you get to actually walk in the same world as these characters rather yeah. than being something that only exists in this liminal space between a performance and editing. I actually, you know, Paul Watson is kind of like a real-life action hero. Yeah. And so to actually get to know somebody like that is is pretty cool. And I still find that even when it's not something as obviously thrilling and dramatic as him, Yeah. getting to meet a lot of the subjects I've got to meet has just been like, wow, I actually get to meet this real person yeah. who is this character, who has all the foibles and nuances and complications of a really well-written character, but they're actually three-dimensional.
0: Yeah. I want to... So I see what you did there in choosing to answer that question first. But I do want to now... So because you've, you've set the stage which is very smart of you, like you've done this before, uh, telling a true story, telling your own true story. But so I, I, so especially somebody who had worked in the fictional you know, feature realm, working in documentary then, how do you know when to start? And, how, and what kind of, of mindset is required when you are setting out to shoot a film that you don't know how it's going to end or when it's going to end?
1: Um, I mean, uh, I, for me, I just try to get to know the subject matter, immerse myself in the world as much as I can before we actually introduce cameras into the equation. Yeah. So when we were making emergency room, I spent, I forget how many months now, many, many months embedded in the emergency department at VGH before we, we ever like, showed up with a camera. Yeah, it was just, just me and a notepad. Out. Just me hanging out. I went there almost every night, like five, five days a week, um, for about three months at least. And, you know, usually I'd be in the office at Lark, which was the production company during the day, but then I'd go there after the end of a business day and just stay there till like midnight Yeah. so that the staff there could get used to me. They would have all the time in the world to ask me all the questions that they probably wouldn't ask when you actually have a whole crew there and a camera. And I, f- I figured, you know, you often have kind of an orientation or introduction meeting to any milieu or workplace that you're gonna film in. Yeah. But the likelihood that somebody's gonna put up their hand and ask all the actual questions in that one forty-five minute opportunity is pretty low and so i figured if i just showed up there every day for months on end they'll probably have an idle moment to walk up to me and go hey kevin i just want to ask so when you guys are actually filming how are you going to do blah 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 yeah and i figured that gives them the, that wider window of opportunity to ask questions that they might not have felt comfortable in in front of a bunch of other people in a special you know circumstance yeah. like that so That gained their trust. They can then figure out what the process is going to be. And also, I became like the window dressing. Once I was there all the time, they knew me. They were comfortable around me. Uh, There's a great quote from Steve James, the guy that made Hoop Dreams, amongst other brilliant works, and how he talked about how you don't ever want to be showing up at a documentary subject's home where they feel like they have to put on a special presentation to you that they're all like wearing their best clothes that they've cleaned Mm -hmm. up and tidied up you need to make yourself so common in their world that when you knock on their door they're wearing their sweatpants and they're like yeah help yourself to whatever you want in the fridge and like act as if and their place is a mess yeah that's who you want is people as they actually are so for me in emergency room it was just showing up and getting them comfortable with my presence so that when we showed uh, up with two cameras and a boom operator it wasn't as big a deal. I really was worried that the day that we showed up with actual like the apparatus of a film, uh, it would change the pH balance of the environment. But it didn't. It was yeah. actually pretty minor.
0: How much of that was you getting used to being in a hospital in? I mean, because, you know, I've I have spent a couple nights, you know, in emergency, you know, I actually I was in the hospital for a couple weeks this summer. I mean, you, there was trauma and and people in crisis all around us you know and for me is just somebody coming from the outside going in as a patient or as you know the spouse of a patient that was pretty um disorienting you know yeah. so how much of, of that time that you spent those months was about you getting used to being in the midst of all of that
1: um I think that was part of it as well and I certainly saw probably the most shocking thing that I saw in you know I've in the course of the we had three seasons. I did two of them. And so I, I probably spent, uh, I don't know, a year and a half in the emergency room, maybe two years in total. But of all of that time, the thing that I saw that was most shocking, what happened in those early days when I was just there with a notepad. And I'm not sure if that really is about conditioning or making you desensitized because it's actually none of those things. You actually, if anything, uh, you you don't get desensitized to the stuff that you see in a trauma bay. Yeah. But it made me at least aware of what could potentially happen and I think I was probably not really uh, anticipating or thinking about it and you know I won't be I'll respect the privacy of the patients uh, to mm. some well I will yeah. I'm not gonna reveal anything detailed but what, what what I saw was a mass stabbing that had come in which had happened in those early days and so to see three trauma beds in the trauma because so That's how I many there's three trauma bays in the main trauma room um, with people my age, um, bleeding out was a uh, pretty shocking and disturbing thing. And I immediately texted friends of mine that lived in the same neighborhood where it had happened just to make sure they were okay. Mm. And all of those people survived. So that's why I'm comfortable sharing this story because it's, it's ultimately a, a happy ending. Um, but it was, uh, I certainly hadn't prepared for seeing that. So that gave me a little bit of a sense of what could be ahead yeah. And we saw lots of things, and I'm not like bragging about it as if, wow, it's so exciting and, and dramatic, but it was just eye-opening to realize what happens in your own city that you think you know uh, yeah. inside out. I mean, I've lived in Vancouver my entire life. I was born in St. Paul's Hospital, so
0: you I never... You were born in St. Paul's, eh? I was,
1: yeah. Wow. So I never had imagined that like that there are stabbing rampages in our city that don't really show up uh, on the news. You don't realize how many things happen on a daily basis that don't get reported, because... Uh, they're, they're just not, they're not known.
0: Yeah, but I, I think one of the gifts, though, I mean, they, that at least you've provided is that you, I mean, through your work, you have kind of shown us a window into this, into th- this other world, you know, because I know that I can't drive by the hospital, or I can, or, you know, an ambulance doesn't go by where I'm not thinking about the impact that, you know, the the work has on the people who 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 do that work now you know the mm-hmm. the possibility of of ptsd and stuff and which which you know makes me wonder about the impact that doing this work has had on you yeah let's turn the lens on you for a minute well you sure know?
1: but before i want to also i'm gonna I, I hate to redirect but oh my god uh, <laughs> the reason i mentioned that story is just to also highlight the like incredible life-saving heroic work that happens on a constant basis in places that we just don't think about like I honestly like that story wasn't in the news and yet yeah. I saw a whole bunch of people in a room work to the top of their ability that were so on their game and yeah. that ensured that the five people that were stabbed that night all survived and yeah. I just think wow that's amazing and these people aren't showing up for a curtain call and taking you know getting awards or anything yeah. like and it just made me realize how many exceptional people um, are around us all the time doing incredible life-saving work so that's what I'm uh, keen to shine a light on, um, but yeah, and the flip side is, I think of them as being exposed to that because obviously that does have psychological yeah. impact to be around all of that, and I'd, I'd say even all, for our crew to have seen some of the things we did. So, yeah,
0: did you guys do any like debriefing or Like, and, and frankly, did. like in all of the work that you've done, the humble documentary and the and after the sirens and I'm rit- like that, you know, when you are. I mean I say this as somebody who's written some stories or had some conversations where I'm you know I'm talking to people who have gone through trauma and talking about trauma that might be similar to my trauma or trauma that I haven't thought about and and the impact that it has had on on me and so now you know I'm learning a lot about how to talk about trauma and also how to listen to myself as as well and and do that kind of self-care you know so like when you are a film crew or when you're a director and you're talking to people who are going through trauma or you're witnessing trauma like you know what what do you do to make sure that you know that you can keep your I don't know like keep, keep some some get to protect your mental health and to protect your own heart when you're doing these kind of stories.
1: Yeah, I mean, we talk about it. We would debrief at the end of a day. I remember once we did have the full crew up and running, so after that story I just described, um, I remember at the end of our second week, we, we uh, a young woman died in, in front of our cameras. And that was, and she was young. She was like 15. And Ugh. I think that was the most, uh, that was a hard moment for the entire crew. And like after that um, happened, we like finished what we were doing, and then we are like, okay, that's it, we're wrapped for the day, and then we had a few days off. Because it was a, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's hard to describe what, first of all, being present for anybody's tragic death is yeah. obviously awful, but there's also um, a weird, I don't know. Am I allowed to swear on this podcast? Fuck yes, okay. you are. So there's a weird mind fuck that happens when you're also present filming somebody die. Yeah. And you're uh, obviously you have a bit of a crisis of like, is, should I be doing this? Is this totally ethically offside? Where, yeah. What are my own values and opinions on this? And am I contributing in a positive way to some, you know, for me at least, I am I don't ever want to make anything that's not contributing to the universe in in a good way yeah um but we felt there was value in that story in terms of just like I mentioned before showing showcasing the incredible work that happens in an emergency room in our own city yeah um but it definitely had an effect on all of us and threw us off and I I, ser- I personally didn't develop PTSD or anything from that but it, it's also I know enough about PTSD that you can't predict when it happens so you yeah. can that's why First responders are so exposed to it because they could do, you know, a thousand calls over the span of twenty-five years, and then one random call for whatever reason is a trigger, and it can't be predicted. There's certain factors that increase likelihood, but you don't know which one it is. Yeah. Uh, so I think most of us that were involved in that show have uh, were were have been okay. Yeah. Um. But we also don't know. Um, but you know, credit to to Lark Productions that they had the resources on hand. Should we ever want to access them, they had always made sure that we had like access to a counselor and and also just kind of debriefing sessions. We had done a fair bit of training beforehand. We would never have kind of just thrown a bunch of film people into that environment without having had proper training. So we yeah. did do we did a whole series of modules of training, kind of the same training that you would if you go into a hospital environment as yeah. as a, one of the staff. So we did all of that um, and I think some of that prepared us, but I also will recognize that there's probably an element of risk and I think we're just all very fortunate that nothing happened Yeah. in terms of our, like obviously things happened in front of our cameras, but nothing happened uh, in terms of any harms to our own mental health.
0: Yeah. What about the responsibility that you feel to the subjects in your film? Um, because like, i I would imagine doing this kind of work that you would need a different kind of of headspace or maybe sense of of rules than you would other kind of of filmmaking especially when you're dealing with people in. In trauma, in gr- and I, frankly, I'm talking about. I'm not just talking about emergency room. I'm talking. I'm. I'm thinking sp- like uh, also about Humboldt, and I'm thinking also about after the sirens, and and frankly, maybe even a lot of the work that you that you did for you know, in, for the the Lost Society, right? You did mm, uh, for
1: yeah, BC Civil Liberties. Yeah, Association. you know what?
0: Like, what kind of of responsibility do you feel or, or like do you, do you swear an oath to them in some way as you said to cast their,
1: well, their yeah. camera on them? There's definitely, you have to kind of balance a lot of really high responsibilities. Um, first of all you don't want to ever be coercive and try to force, trick, compel or influence somebody's decision to participate in a documentary film. There's been obviously a couple of high-profile examples in this town that I won't name of shows that ended up getting in a lot of hot water for um, getting people to participate in a show where obviously that person was somebody pretty vulnerable or marginalized yeah. and felt that they didn't really have a choice in one what of the questions. It, like,
0: there's poverty tourism and there's, yeah. like, you know, um, and like then, poverty porn? Like, or just like.
1: narrative extraction, um, you know. I, I know people like Elmaya Tailfeathers have spoken a lot really eloquently mm. about, you know, what we, how we've told stories of indigenous peoples and yes. really kind of the narrative colonialism that happens and how you don't want to be practicing extractive filmmaking where you're taking somebody's story as if it's a commodity to be harvested and then exploiting it for your own benefit. And yeah. obviously we've, you know, uh, settler film industry has done that a lot to indigenous peoples, but um, we also have done that to a lot of other groups, yeah. even marginalized people, poor people, uh, men- people who are vulnerable because of mental health issues. So whenever you're making a documentary, you need to be sensitive to that. But I've also learned over the years that You know, my default assumption probably before making Emergency Room would have been like, well, who in the world is going to want to share their worst moment, their worst day of their life or perhaps the last day of their life with a film crew? That's insane. Nobody will want that. But that's me coming at it from a position of somebody who works in media where we're a little bit more sometimes, uh, if not cynical, at least critically minded about it. But. I think there's a lot of people that see that as something that's denied to them. And I've met a lot of people for whom participating and sharing their story in a film gave them a sense of power, control of their story, and agency that they were otherwise denied, that they normally look at our screens as being the place of celebrities, politicians, and other people of immense privilege and wealth. And Mm -hmm. by letting them get to be on a screen, and tell their story in their own words because I've never in any project I've ever done used narration or anything like that. I've
0: oh, really? I let people tell yeah. their
1: own stories and yeah, we edit that. Um, but we don't reconstitute it or change what they're saying. And I see a lot of what just documentary filmmaking being is like you're being a conductor for somebody else's story. You're letting yeah. them have a platform, letting them share their story, and just like a book editor would or a conductor at a symphony with a soloist, you're making them present the best possible version of that that they can. And so for that, that is a privilege. And when I've met lots and lots of people now, and I have met lots of documentary subjects who are like, no, I want to participate. I want to be on TV or on a movie screen, and I want to be the one telling my story. And I realized, oh, okay. It's not just <laughs> the default assumption when you work in media, when you work in film and TV might be like, oh, who's going to ever want to talk to us? Yeah. But then you realize, no, actually, a lot of people. And so for me, it's been a privilege to find those opportunities to do that with people. And But you still need to be very sensitive and respectful that you aren't pushing people too far. There's certainly been... You know, there's one in one of the, in the second episode of Emergency Room. It ends with a death of um, with Mark Harris, who was actually an instructor at UBC. Mm-hmm. He was he taught film. He was also a writer for the Georgia Strait, and he was somebody that I knew from my days of working in movie theaters. Yeah. He used to come in and and re- see movies and then write reviews of them. We filmed his death. I didn't know that in that instant because when somebody comes in in a traumatic situation, it, there's masks on a face and things like that, and there and yeah, there's this whole the whole craziness that happens in a trauma bay and um it was only while we were filming it um his 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 partner had been in there and so you know usually when that happens we're like okay we don't want to disrupt anything for a family member and so we're about to pull up stakes but the social worker came in and said she had already spoken to her and told her what was going on and um and she said it was okay because he was he was into film and so he would actually kind of appreciate this so Mm. we didn't know how that situation was going to happen when that Statement was said, and sadly, Mark didn't um, survive. And I remember thinking, okay, well, the last thing I'm going to do now is ask in this moment um, if his 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 now widow is going to want to have that moment um, shared in a in a screen story. And so we stayed in contact, but I didn't even try to press the issue for several months. Yeah. Um, and in the end, she chose to. Um, I feel it's a really powerful portrait of kind of of love of partnership. I yeah. mean, it's, um, p-
0: it's part of the journey. Yeah,
1: and she, I think, recognized that, and more importantly, recognized that he would have seen it that way. And yeah. so, let us use that footage. Um, but I remember being like, "If she says no, obviously, I'm the footage will be deleted. We won't yeah. ever use it." And um, and so, it's hard sometimes for other entities broadcasters and production companies to understand those risks because there's a lot of investment in money but obviously mm. your values and ethics as a human being trump all of that and fortunately everybody was on side that and we did end up using that but that was um uh an incredibly generous and brave thing for her to have done yeah and um i think she's a remarkable woman
0: yeah amazing i guess you have to also be ready to delete stuff like it, like if you think like this is this is going to be this is would will be so incredible as a documentary filmmaker when you're just filming these kind of subjects you have to be willing to
1: Absolutely. To I just mean let you need, you always have that kind of experience when you're making any kind of film that you invest a lot of there's a higher <laughs> shooting ratio for anything. You might shoot a lot of stuff that you might not use. Even yeah. when you're doing a dramatic project you might spend th- tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars on a scene that might wind up on the floor. And, yeah. it, and it's the same with documentary, it's just sometimes the investment is uh, emotional energy that's higher than just the, the monetary value. I know even, and, but then here's another example, and I think it's important to recognize uh, how one needs to be flexible. I hear from a lot of like documentary filmmakers asking me advice on how to do things. How do they get somebody's life rights? How do they get this commitment? And you know, obviously, the nature of an art form that's governed by errors and admissions insurance. If we did everything by the rules of what we would need to for uh, legal purposes to be safe for an investment, we would be conducting ourselves in ways that's not necessarily very humane. Mm. So even um, I'd say, you know, the nature of getting release forms up front from people is pretty antithetical to kind of the indigenous cultural experience. And so, for instance, even making a film about Robert Davidson. And Robert Davidson is obviously somebody very different from somebody... Who might be marginalized or vulnerable he's rich and famous he says yeah. he's got a lot of power however we knew that if we tried to get robert to sign a life rights agreement or anything like that up front he'd be like what the hell is this yeah so you know we m- built a relationship with robert it, and i see that project that charles that you know it's all credit to charles wilkinson the director mm-hmm. that was really a collaborative relationship with the and with the documentary subject and we screened the film to Robert and he was he gave some feedback on what he thought we had gotten wrong. And it was really about letting Robert share his story. And we didn't even have anything signed by Robert until the end.
0: Wow.
1: And, you know, I don't know if I should put a say lot that of faith loud.
0: in that. Well, I mean,
1: but yeah, well, we, exactly. And I mentioned that to um other filmmaking entities in the city and they're like, are you insane? Yeah. I mean, he could have pulled up <laughs> stakes at the end. I'm like, yeah. yep. But that was how we. Demonstrated our like what we were uh, the respect that we were affording him and trust because how many times have Indigenous peoples been fucked over and having their story told? Yeah, almost every every other time. single
0: time. Yeah, So pretty much.
1: We knew that we had to operate differently.
0: Yeah, um, c- can you tell me about the difference between the work that you do as a as a director of documentary and a producer of documentary? Because I mean, the work that you've done with Charles is different than than the the work that you do, like like after the sirens or or um, co-directing the Humboldt uh, documentary as well. Like, what is the difference? Uh, I mean, is it paperwork? Is that a big part of it? Is no, it? No, I don't. I'm not or? really that
1: into paperwork. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I went to art school, so yeah. um, I remember people used to say. What are you doing being a producer? You went to art school. But I mean, for me, most of my producing is creative producing. Yeah. And I feel very involved in this, the creative construction of any project I'm involved in. Yeah. Whether it be one of Charles Wilkinson's documentaries or a TV series like The Romeo Section or any of the feature films I was involved in at Anagram. Yeah. Um, I have a reasonably decent like organizational and administrative skill set and that's helpful yeah but that's not really what i like am passionate about or think about um and so my work with charles i mean i feel so so honored to have been able to work with charles wilkinson on four films now wow. and uh you know anytime you work with people repeatedly it's a real pleasure because you get to know them you yeah. know there's a shorthand there's a familiarity um, it's really great working with Trish Dolman again on this new series that I'm. This documentary I know that's series a very
0: full circle kind of thing. Yeah, as well, because yeah. she directed
1: Eco Pirate, which I produced, and now it, the roles are reversed, and it's like ten years later. But there's a lot of overlaps, and it's like it feels like working with an old friend. And yeah. you know, certainly working with Charles and Tina Schleicher, his his partner in life and in work. Um, those two I've made yeah four films with. And anytime you make a film. It's a bit of a trial by fire. There's a lot of challenges, a lot of stresses. So once you've gone through all that with somebody or a pair of people or other more than that, um, and I feel the same way about relationships I have with editors, with cinematographers who I've Mm. worked with repeatedly, like you feel connected. You've bonded with that person. You've gone through some serious tests. And uh, so it's just a real, it's really great working with Charles and Tina. And I mean, mostly my biggest involvement, I'm the kind of lead for all the stuff to do with the broadcaster and the funders I put together the financing and so that's the boring stuff that I do with them but then I also am involved heavily in the edit and the construction of the story and and things like that and often I'm sometimes in the field shooting with them yeah so it changes um you know directing obviously you're doing it all and you're you're keeping the whole thing afloat you're the big difference is when I'm directing documentaries. That's where you are the face to the subjects, and that's the relationship. That's a really big part of the the job. Yeah. Um, and when I'm producing, I'm just no longer. Then you're on the like you're on the periphery. You're behind the scenes. You're in the background. You still meet the subjects and get to know them, but it's not the same. It's not like the project lives or dies on your relationship to that one. Whereas it does when you're the director. Okay.
0: Well, thank you. You did clarify something for me. Uh, so we're going to take a break. And when we come back, I want to talk about documentary in Canada. Like, Because I, I mean, I mentioned this in my introductory thesis statement. I think that our, our especially our feature length documentary scene in this country is incredibly strong. We have, in, you know, incredible, I'm using that word, incredibly too much but it is it is relevant work. it is incredible voices you know that are doing some incre- incredibly cutting-edge work I'm thinking about Marie Clements and, and Charles Wilkinson and Baljeet Sangra and Dr. Tasha Hubbard and, and Joella Kabalu like people who are who are just like t- telling and stories in really incredible ways I will think of some new words to, use I think to that describe word. the kid. but it's incredible our, can, our scene is really incredible here. here here. Thank you for supporting me. Uh, I will I will uh, edit that in post. Well I'll, I'll be just putting in some other words for I don't know like what's another um, resonant uh, fascinating, compelling dro- jaw dropping eye popping, gripping, evocative, provocative, important.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think also <laughs> any of those people, Marie, Tasha, Joella, um, uh, Paul Charles? Cheat, yeah. Charles, <laughs> uh, those are all incredible people. So I think that's a perfectly appropriate word.
0: Well, and thank you. That That means a lot, especially coming from an incredible filmmaker like yourself. So we're going to take that break and we will talk about all of that when we get back. This ad begins with a story about an important but largely forgotten piece of Hollywood North history, the fish flight. In the 1980s, the fish flight was an early morning flight from Vancouver that delivered fresh fish to Los Angeles before the start of the business day. These were the early days of Hollywood North before digital deliveries and fast transfer speeds. And the pioneers of the Vancouver film industry began loading up the fish flight with film reels so Hollywood execs could review the footage shot on the previous day. The Fish Flight was also one of the building blocks of the visual effects and animation mecca that is present-day Vancouver. And Fish Flight Entertainment builds on this legacy. Fish Flight Entertainment serves the games, film, and television industries. We remember the days of the Fish Flight and attack our projects with the same passion as those pioneering days of yore. We believe in jumping off the cliff and building our wings on the way down. And who knows? That old fish with improvised wings may even fly. Learn more about Fishflight Entertainment at fishflightentertainment.com. That's fishflightentertainment.com. It's a very strong documentary scene here that we have in Canada. What is a Canadian documentary and why is it doing so well?
1: <laughs> well I don't know how to define what makes a Canadian documentary um particularly great but I do think we happen to have a strong documentary uh scene right now and that's in spite of obviously a lot of challenges and cuts to the main supporters of documentary we you know there's been various reasons to freak out a lot in the last 15 20 years about funding cutbacks but we managed we seem to have survived in spite of that and there's um certainly yeah as you as you listed there's a lot of incredibly exciting filmmakers doing exceptional work um, and I don't know if that what that has to do with I'm probably l- less good at tracking that than I am actually I, for some reason I'm more obsessed with tracking what m- influences dramatic film and television mm. content but documentary just seems to be able to exist and I think the fact that Netflix has introduced so many viewers to documentaries more people are watching documentaries and have access to documentaries than ever before whereas yeah. in the past it used to be a, a special thing like you know, when, when Hoop Dreams was made, that was the first documentary feature to to crack a million dollars at the box office. Wow! And now we had last year, we had three films, uh, Won't You Be My Neighbor, RBG, and Three Identical Strangers, all cracking 10 million at the box mm. office and we, or I think those three even made it to 20. And then there's like two others that were hot on their heels. So like yeah. you had five theatrically released feature documentaries and yeah, you know, RBG and and Won't You Be My Neighbor are arguably built on existing IP because people know who Ruth Bader Ginsburg is and they know who Mr. Rogers is. But that doesn't account for the success of Three Identical Strangers or some of the other films. And that's just purely people being interested in stories that are interesting and well-told and told in innovative ways. And even a few years ago when we had like Searching for Sugarman and um, The Imposter, those were two massive breakout theatrical feature docs. Yeah, and so there's been... I just think there's um, a really high level of craft happening in it as a, a storytelling medium. And people are therefore, you know, I, I hear from people saying all the time, like, we are just random strangers, I mean, they're like, oh, you make documentaries? I love documentaries. I watch yeah. this and this and this. And they're rattling off titles that I'm like... 10 years ago that would have been obscure information and yeah. now I'm like you are just a regular moviegoer, and you are seeing them so I think that's really great and it's exciting for all those filmmakers that you identified because I think people now can get their work seen in a way they couldn't before
0: yeah I wonder how much of it too has to do with um, with activism and uh, and the hashtag the resistance and those things as well you know because documentary like maybe like correct me if I'm wrong, and this is just me as somebody who's like just like on the outside looking in. But it just it in a lot of ways it seems like a political act, you know, an act of resistance, an and, an act of an activist to to pick up a camera and and elevate and amplify an untold story, you know, as well. And then we and because of things like social media and Netflix, you know, we are. You know, we we have the ability to kind of bypass, you know, the traditional funding models and broadcasters and and to share these stories in that way. Yeah, I mean, I,
1: way. I think certainly there's a big history of social activism in documentary cinema and there's a big overlap and there's a lot of like uh, political activism that occurs. And just, yeah, that's it's kind of inseparably fused. You can't really talk about the, the history of social activism uh, about any real issue without there being an overlap at some point with the films that have been made on that issue. And yeah. obviously there's ones that break out huge, whether it be an inconvenient truth or things that just kind of like change the, or, you know, even even things that are fairly specific, like uh, Blackfish, basically mm. changing the landscape for all the marine lands and sea lands of the world, or, you know, years before that, The Cove and things like that. So there's been a lot of films on the environment, about... Um, indigenous resistance, about um, women's rights, about there's a lot of L- L- landmark LGBTQ films. I think of The Life and Times of Harvey Milk. Those are like mm. huge transformative films that end up like having a massive impact. So I think people are have always recognized its potential to affect social change because it's relatively affordable. You can't, you know, just go off and make a Netflix dramatic series yeah. unless you are Netflix. But you can make a documentary for a lot cheaper and obviously the democratization of film tools that happened with the digital revolution has made that even more affordable and I think for a while documentaries looked bad because people just thought they could just pick up any camera but then Mm. because they're getting seen more there's now a real high bar in terms of how a documentary should look and I think a lot of documentaries are as cinematic and as gorgeously shot as any well made feature film
0: yeah I feel like this is an unfair question but it's my show. So I'm going to ask the end for a question. What is a Kevin Eastwood documentary?
1: That's a t- tough question, even for me. Yes. Um I would say... <laughs> Are I, you going
0: to reframe the question or rephrase well, it or redirect?
1: <laughs> I, I feel I'm still kind of in the days of my um, own artistic practice. That sounds really pretentious, but I just mean it is a, like a, a way to describe like... My own evolution as making films—that I'm still doing whatever I can to just kind of prove my qualification. And um, you know, somebody like Robert Davidson would talk about how, when you're a Haida carver, you carve for like ten years before you actually identify yourself as a carver. Like mm. to be an artist in Haida culture and a whole bunch of other Northwest Coast cultures—that's a—that's a—that's a designation that you don't get to just assume lightly. You don't just go and pretend that you've been doing it for a year. And that you're now at the same level as those other people. And yeah. so there's this belief that you really need to be an apprentice and that being an apprentice is a big deal. And you do all that before you ever identify yourself as an artist. And I kind of feel I've always felt <laughs> that way about being a director. I've always wanted to be a director since 13. Um, and I've, you know, I've, I feel qualified to call myself a producer because I've produced a lot of things. But, you know, even after I've made several documentaries, I'm like, well, you know, I'm a documentary filmmaker, but I don't like to say that too loudly because I'm like, well, I, for me, I'm still honing my craft. So I'm always mm. puzzled when I see people who have been making films for six months or a year and they call themselves a filmmaker. I'm like, what? You're allowed to? <laughs> uh, and not because no, no fault against them. I just yeah. didn't think that one that's enough experience to say you actually do that. Um, so for me, you know, even things like Emergency Room and even this history series that I'm doing now, these are projects I'm I feel very fortunate to have been asked to do. And they weren't necessarily things that I would have started from scratch. Even the Humboldt film, that's something that I was approached to do. And yeah. so, uh, partly for my own uh, just development as as honing my own skills and my own craft, I say yes. And it's been a real honor and a privilege to get to tell those stories. But uh, the films of my own, if I was left to my own devices, well yes. um I mean I'm I think I'm drawn to stories that have a high emotional (laughs) release that's consistent with what the things I've said yes to that others have presented me with. I like feeling strong emotions. I feel, you know, I'm a sap. I cry at any number of works of art, and I often feel that's what being alive and being a human being really is about, is the fact that we can read words on a page or watch projected light on a screen or hear music and be moved to tears, that for whatever reason, somebody has used the abstract delivery mechanism of art to trigger a strong intellectual and emotional response to us. And that just seems like uh, something I'm in of and I like to participate in. So I'm, I'm really drawn to anything that has a lot of emotion and a lot of wonderment. That's my other thing is like even just in the last couple of days, um, we've been shooting all over the northern part of Vancouver Island and our production manager who's with us in the field cracked up yesterday because... We just finished filming something, or not the day before, uh, we'd been filming some incredible carving in Alert Bay, and then we were in a cafe, and I turned and looked at his chair, and I was like, oh my God, look at that chair, it's amazing. And I just laughed, and he's like, <laughs> Kevin, I've never met anybody that has such a sense of wonderment about everything. I'm like, but look at it, it's amazing. And we didn't film it. But even when I did second unit on the Romeo section, the crew would often laugh and make Comparisons to me like a dog chasing a squirrel, like, oh, look, a squirrel, oh, look, a squirrel. Because we'd be filming beauty shots in the whatever Burrard Inlet Harbor, and there'd be like another great angle on a crane at sunset. And I'd be, look at that, that's amazing. So um that's a kind of disjointed answer, but I'm drawn to things that trigger that response to me, whatever that can be.
0: Yeah. Oh, I have so many follow up questions to so much of the stuff that you said there. I'm going to start with this one. what are some mistakes that you think that you've made in your journey and what what did you learn from them?
1: Um, well, I mean, I sometimes regret that I haven't um, uh, tried my own hand at directing a dramatic feature yet. I'm, I have one in development. I've had various ones in development, but it's kind of, you know, sometimes it's all about it's better to sometimes know a little bit less than what you know. Mm. Because I've produced enough feature films, I know how many fail. I know how hard it is. I know. The brutal odds against it, the likelihood that even if you pull off the incredible feat of getting others to give you money, the likelihood you'll then get it seen by an audience, let alone well, you know, the biggest miracle of all is that it's going to turn out any good. Mm-hmm. Um, once you see the the statistics on that, once you've seen, once you've been around a while, it can be pretty overwhelming to try to think that you're going to be the exception, that you're going to make a film that, first of all, isn't terrible. Yeah. Secondly, that it's going to be good and get like any actual release and thirdly even if it does get that it actually gets seen because it's one thing to get a distributor on board but then they might not even still manage to reach an audience yeah so to do all that and pull it off and actually have the justification for the energy of the hundreds of people that worked on it all the time and energy you you look it's a pretty bad record in in canada and also we're like sadly the most like (laughs) There's no other country in the world where its own citizens are so averse to its own cinema. Oh, That's the biggest obstacle in Canadian cinema is cultural cringe. Yeah, Italians don't go, oh, I don't want to see an Italian film. Australians don't say that about an Australian film and so forth. But in Canada, that's the biggest obstacle. So it's hard to build up the confidence to want to make a first feature knowing those things. So that for me is the thing I I wish that I'd made a feature film by now.
0: Yeah. Oh, well, I will continue to do my part to shout about Canadian film from the rooftops. Because for me, I... I get so much out of watching, I mean, documentaries, but also, you know, narrative features, because I mean, there is a very unique mirror that is held up, you know, in, in, the, in that kind of work. I, I guess my other, the other thing that I wanted to kind of to uh, branch off from is about Ro- the Romeo section, uh, because, I mean, I'm, I have don't get me wrong, I love our national broadcaster, I love a lot of the work that they're doing, especially in the podcast realm, frankly. Uh, but th- the way that they've treated, I think, Chris Haddock is atrocious. Uh, <laughs> Kevin is like retreating into himself. But um, I, I guess I, I just my, my curiosity is, what happened there, Kevin?
1: Oh, I mean, <laughs> Romeo section, we just we didn't have the numbers. Is that get, what it was? Yeah, I I fa- don't, there's no greater conspiracy than that. And you know, I guess I know, I'm so
0: affected by Chris Haddock's work that I'm assuming that there's some kind of no, no, conspiracy. Definitely not.
1: No, I'd say, look, you know, it Intelligence so got canceled probably prematurely. It, like any show that got the numbers that Intelligence got when it got canceled. I mean, and for anybody listening to this who doesn't know, Chris Haddock obviously created Da Vinci's Inquest that made a name for him. Yeah. lasted nine seasons and they did, became Da Vinci City Hall, did two or three seasons after that that ended its run, but hey, nobody can fault a show that does 11 years. Um, and then they did um, Intelligence, which a lot of people have compared to like things like The Wire, uh, which is a pretty good comparison. Um, and um, it only lasted two years before it was cancelled. And that at that time, Chris did speak out and was very vocal in his disappointment. Um, but I think CBC and Chris certainly buried the hatchet. And um, it's obviously the nature of broadcasters It's totally different people at CBC Now than there was Mm. at Intelligence. And Sally Caddo is a big supporter of Chris Caddox. And Sally's awesome. Sally's great. um, I think, you know, she deserves all credit for supporting Chris and reaching out to him. And the Romeo section happened because they believed in Chris. And so that, I don't think they could demonstrate their commitment or their support more than by letting them get to make that show. And we got to do two seasons. And sadly, for whatever reason... The audience didn't find it. I don't know if that was because, um, I don't know if it was too dense. I don't know if it was too complicated. I don't know if it's what people wanted at that time. I don't know if it was necessarily marketed that well. I don't Um, think it was
0: marketed that well. I mean, that's just my, this is me having my own opinion spouting off. But I just, I look at what's going on in, in the news, you know where, and I'm watching it, and I'm like, the stuff that they that that Chris wrote for that show yeah. is like pulled from the future headlines. Totally
1: present, you know. Yeah. It's
0: it, it's and you know, and that 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 season that second season. I know I'm like preaching to the choir here, but that second season arc that Brian Markinson's character had oh, was yeah. like some of the finest acting I've ever seen. Oh, on I Canadian mean, across television. the board. I mean,
1: Brian, um, Juan, uh, Andrew. Uggam um we had an Manu exceptional Manny Jacinto is like cast. this huge star now as oh wild. yeah well you look at also the people involved in that show I mean um Brandon Ugama was our cinematographer whose career has just gone supernova since that show that's so true so the combined talent on that show ah it was such an honor and a privilege to work on that show if if that show had continued on and I was still working on the same show now, three years later, if we were on season five, I would be totally happy. I would be happy too. I would have worked too. on that for as long as possible. <laughs> it was a, a dream project. But that's the thing. is, as, as I say, even when you make a good show, there's no guarantee it's going to last or that it will get seen.
0: I love how you're, you, you are able to talk about it in such a positive way where I'm as just a viewer and a fan, I'm just still really angry. I'm angry and I see Chris Haddock walking all over this neighborhood all the time with his hat on Like, and I'm like what are all the amazing thoughts he has going on oh, yeah. in his brain and it's just I just think it's just criminal I think it's criminal that there isn't a Chris Haddock show on TV right now you know that's being yeah. filmed right now narrative in Kitsilano even because that's I'm, where I live I'm with
1: you I mean look <laughs> at how many shows uh, even that do get made in Canada are all from central Canada and out east and yeah. it's we rarely get to have an actual local production that's really set here. No, no offense to all the, you know, great showrunners like um, Dennis Heaton and... Um,
0: oh, my God. I uh, love his... yeah. and the,
1: the everybody from Van Helsing and all those things. Nothing, But those are not identifiably set in <laughs> this place. Yeah. So whereas Chris Haddock's shows are set in Vancouver. And yeah. I think that's... First of all, it means we get a lot of great actors showing up to... It's just a lot of roles. It's, yeah, it's a real shame. Yeah. It's, it's a great way to take advantage of the incredible, rich talent pool we have here.
0: Yeah, and uh, I will also say that this is strictly my opinion. I'm not going to impose it on Kevin at all, but I think that, you know, the national broadcaster should have a show that is that a narrative, like fiction show that is is produced here, written here, set here, especially if we are one of the biggest film and television production centers in the world anyways.
1: Totally. I mean... I feel like I'm talking too much, um, but uh, <laughs> it's,
0: it's the Kevin Eastman episode. You're supposed to talk, and I shouldn't well, be injecting my opinion all over the place. But I'm very passionate no, about I, this I, too. No, I and I like your
1: opinions. Um, I, you know, it's the third golden age of television. We have countries that have never really meant to participate in the television scene who are like hitting it out of the park oh, now. Yeah. We have the whole phenomenon of Nordic Noir, and I just think it's such a shame that a place like British Columbia, which is the reason that one of the reasons that we're used for so many Hollywood productions is it's an exceptional backdrop. Yeah, we have really trained crews who are great and all that, too. Same time zone as L.A., cheap dollar, etc., tax credits and all that. But really, it all started because we're an exceptional backdrop. And that's what all those other shows, whether it be something like an Icelandic show like Trapped or like shows like um, Broadchurch or, you know, Mm. The Bridge and shows from out of Scandinavia where they're using their setting to really have a unique vibe and feel. I'm like, why don't we do that here in BC? We should be having our own noir show set here that's set somewhere on the Northwest Coast that set on a Gulf Island. That was the success to the two biggest hits we've ever exported, Danger Bay and Beachcombers, was the setting. And it doesn't mean that it just needs to be poppy and a family show. You could make it dark and moody and cool. That's what the X-Files did, obviously. Yeah. That's what the Killing did. But why don't we have our own that's just showcasing the setting?
0: Do you see my face? I want to watch that so bad.
1: Yep. yep.
0: <laughs> and I wanna see the talented artists who are our friends doing that. Oh my god, bring Brendan back, bring oh, you know Yeah. I wish know. that
1: the C B C was making a show that was like the, the BC version of like Broadchurch or something or, yeah. or um,
0: and we don't mean Grace Point okay we mean the BC yeah version. no offense to Grace Point but <laughs> no, it does not like, have CBC, that same vibe no but like CBC yeah. like you know my cause, and, and this is frankly why I'm so excited about the web series scene as well you know because people like we have incre- like there's that word again incredible writers you know who are, who are trying to tell those stories on the teeny teeny tiny little budget but doing it taking advantage of our well, you know like, of our of our natural setting and also our incredible, incredible, I, I will search for a better word, incredible actors and artists that we have here.
1: A big part of our, the reason the film industry exists here is because Robert Altman chose to shoot That Cold Day in the Park here because, and that's basically, you know, a few blocks from here, that's Catlow yeah. Park. Like, yeah. he wanted the vibe and feel and setting of what was at the time 70s Kitsilano drenched in rain in Vancouver. And then he was like, uh ah, that place was really cool. I think I'm going to come back and make another film there. And then that's how McCabe and Mrs. Miller happened. And that too is this rain-drenched, gorgeously cinematic work. Yeah. And I mean, those things, first of all, set his career in motion. It created Lionsgate. That's why Lionsgate exists was because Robert Altman founded it and he named it after the Lions, the same Lions that we look at from the Lionsgate Bridge and the same name that the Lionsgate Bridge has. So yeah. like there's a direct um, correlation between our mood and our atmosphere and ultimately the massive multinational, well not multinational, but the massive company studio that now makes things like The Hunger Games. Like, yeah. So we should take a cue from that of where it all started. It's from the rain and the settings. Um, Even, and this is a little known fact, but like, um, uh, Philip K. Dick wrote Blade Runner or uh, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep while in North Vancouver for one particular winter that was particularly rainy. And that's why it rains in Blade Runner and Futuristic LA. (gasps) That is actually Vancouver. (laughs) And that's another example of like, we don't, take advantage and harness these things I know it's why X-Files left at it it's whatever eighth season or whatever it was but then ultimately it's come back because mm-hmm. like that like don't think of it as a problem it's it's, it's, a, it's, gift. it's a gift
0: <laughs> yes this is why I love the podcast so much because I didn't know we were going to end up here and I am so thankful that we did I do uh, want to talk before we go uh, I want to talk a little bit about the project that uh, I think that I saw that the it is as a yet unnamed in the notes that I would seen. That uh, I mean, you're integrating um, indigenous, British, European, Asian, and American perspectives in this. That's huge, you yeah. know. So tell us, tell us about your journey with this, then, and kind of some of the diff- the different uh, stories that I, we'll be.
1: Hearing. I, I mean, it's huge. So <laughs>
0: it's <hard> to, <laughs> I don't even know
1: where to begin. Uh, well, so that's the thing. How
0: do you begin telling the story? Well, then? we're doing
1: our best to just kind of like gather them all up. Uh, we're I, I, kind of 15 days into a very ambitious 75 day shoot. 75 days. Correct. Yeah. Wow. I I I always find it slightly amusing when people. Who uh, work only exclusively in dramatic production, and when they're like, "Oh yeah, you make docs now, right?" And they kind of, I can sometimes get a sense of attitude that it's like penny ante, that it's small, it's minor. And then <laughs> I'm like, mm, "I've got 75 days to shoot this." Yeah. <laughs> How's your 12 days to make a feature going? Uh, so I that's it enables a broad canvas, and it's a testament to Knowledge Network and to Screen Siren Pictures that um, we've got. Uh, a robust budget that we can do that um and i it's a big canvas so we'll see whether we pull it off no pressure um but the stories that we tell I, uh it's hard to i'll give a few quick data points of the, like the things that stand out just from what we've shot already um i mean we've done um a story about uh, we went to the Gurseek Temple in Abbotsford, which is the longest, the oldest still standing Sikh temple in the Western Hemisphere. And mm-hmm. it's where a lot of the people went who were part of the shore committee, which was the committee that was dealing with how to help the people aboard the Komagatu Maru, the ship that was in the Vancouver Harbor that was detained for three months when people who would have thought that because they're you know citizens of the Commonwealth would be allowed to come to Canada, especially since they are expected to fight in a war with the same country, like on behalf of the same uh, uh, King United Kingdom, the next month, that oh okay, well surely we can move freely from. You know, British India to, to Canada I mean people from Australia were allowed to just show up here and What's and the
0: difference between Gee, those what could people? be the
1: difference yeah so instead but these ones were kept in the harbor and basically were in squalid increasingly squalid conditions and um, and then ultimately sent away and then when they returned to Calcutta they were boarded and 19 people were shot so obviously it's a really black mark on our history but we've also tried to showcase some of the positive parts which is the amazing people that were part of the Sikh community who were trying to raise money and food and uh, do great things so that's like just one chapter um we also I had the privilege of interviewing Janine Fuller recently of Little Sisters kind of the iconic (gasps) face of Little Sisters bookstore which of course Little Sisters was targeted and harassed by Canada Customs, now CBSA, and the Canadian government at the time for bringing in LGBTQ content, and it was deemed obscene. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, all their books were held up at the border, and so they fought that for kind of a very long landmark Supreme Court case. And then also what we forget is that like Little Sisters was on the receiving end of a lot of hate and, and animosity and, and violence. And so like Little Sisters was bombed. Three times between 87, 88, and eighty-nine, and I think always about think about that people, Vancouver listeners. It, like,
0: think about that. That is a Vancouver bookstore.
1: Totally, that and was bombed. Yeah, and again
0: and again and again in. In recent history. In recent like, history. I
1: have, I, I mean, now I sound really old, but like, I can remember 1989. Yeah, <laughs> and <me too. laughs> so the idea, if somebody was to tell me that like, oh, there was bombings happening in your city in your lifetime, I'd be like, what are, you, what are you talking about? No, no, that happens on the other side of the planet. And I think we think, oh, that happens in the Middle East, that happens in Syria, that happens in Northern Ireland, but not in Vancouver. No, people were actively bombing an LGBTQ bookstore in the late 80s, basically the beginning of the 90s. That's... Yeah crazy to me and it shows that not just stories from 1914 like Homogado Maru but even a story from 1989 kind of gets lost yeah. that we're always our baselines constantly shifting we're really only thinking about right now and maybe the last five years yeah. um so I think it's important to see how people like Janine Fuller in that story was really a defiant face in after in the face of so much hate and homophobia And that became a gathering point. I mean, Little Sisters is so much more than a bookstore. I mean, it's got different owners now, so it's not quite the same. But, like, back then, it was a gathering point for the LGBTQ community. It was like a community center. It was a hub. It was a place where people would get information. Um, And obviously, you know, even before the wave of violence that they're receiving from those books... Uh, there was also the the whole AIDS crisis and how that was a place to get information when nobody understood what was going on. Yeah. And these are things that are happening in recent history in this place. And those are just two random chapters of we have like 80. Um, but I think it's really important to tell stories about people who are bona fide heroes living in the city now. Just like I say, you know, the people that work in an emergency room. And by that, I mean all the staff, not just the doctors, but the like. The social workers, the patient care aides, et cetera. They're all heroes, but so too are people like Janine Fuller and people who would have worked on the Shore Committee. So I it's a real honor and a privilege telling some of those stories.
0: Wow. What a what an incredible opportunity that is though, as well to sit there and to choose. I mean, I use I've been using the words elevate and amplify. A lot, you know, to elevate and amplify stories that people might not otherwise know. It's uh, when can people expect to to see this series?
1: Uh, it's going to be a while. Yeah. <laughs> We're shooting uh, <laughs> for the next while, and then there'll be the editing through the next year. It'll premiere in 2021, so I would expect. I can't
0: like, believe 2021 is a re- is like. I know. Yeah. It's like just around the corner. It's I, a yeah, thing. It's
1: terrifying. So it'll well, probably be January ish 2021.
0: Wonderful, and you will come back. And you will tell us all about it. I would be honored to. Yes, thank you. Uh, I, I love to include some time travel uh, in my episodes, and so I would love to. Uh, and you can choose your time travel vehicle of choice. There's a TARDIS. There's a Delorean. You can do the time machine. You can do the Bill and Ted's phone booth. Whichever you want. Um, but we're gonna we're gonna get in the in your time machine, uh, and we're gonna. I think we're gonna go back to you just out of film school and you have the opportunity to give yourself some advice what would you say or would you say anything at all because that's an option
1: too mm, uh, let me think for just a moment mm.
0: oh wow he's he's oh, really edited thinking out the very silence. deeply I, No! I would uh, it's pregnant pause
1: I would say don't put I think there's a, been a cultural shift, and I would encourage myself not to have tolerated mean people. There's a lot of egos in the film industry, mm-hmm. um, and I'd say in the past it was kind of the norm that producers and other people on set were yellers and screamers and tyrants and obviously the the archetype of, you know, basically Harvey Weinstein. Like, long before we knew that he was a sexual predator, yeah. we all knew he was an asshole. Yeah. That was legendary. And yet that was tolerated, and not just tolerated, but I think used as an example that in order to be the most powerful producer on the planet, you have to be an asshole.
0: Mm. And I I
1: haven't certainly, haven't practiced that. But I would say that I wish I had told myself not to put up with the assholes that work in this industry. And I'm very fortunate that I've worked with a lot of amazing people. There have definitely been bullies that I've seen that had crossed my path in the early days that I would be like, oh, I don't want to cross them. And so I'd just be more like, meek and now I wish I'd told myself like those people are assholes they're not actually going to last in the long run fuck them uh so and would you
0: say to qu- to walk <clears throat> away from projects or would you say to stay like to stay in yeah sometimes you don't out?
1: always have that ability but I would have put up uh I wouldn't have let people necessarily and it's not like this happened to me that much but uh I if it happened to me I can imagine it happens to a lot of people so I think it's helpful advice to like uh not uh, you know, not everyone can stand up and it might not be appropriate, but don't put up with it. Um, <sighs> if that means reporting or calling out people for that bad behavior. Yeah, that's what should happen. Like, I think we it's it's on all of us to keep it as a positive and supportive industry. So we don't have those monsters dominating. And, yeah. you know, I can even think of I'm look, I'm a white male cisgendered so like I'm as privileged as they come yet I recognize those moments that happened in, in my career and I think oh my god how bad it must be for anybody that doesn't have the immense amount of privilege that I have so yeah. I think be really freaking hard for them so I should probably do what I can to try to thwart st- those those bad personalities and those negative personalities and I don't even mean that necessarily any of those people were like uh, sexual predators of <laughs> Harvey Weinstein's kind but even yeah. just being a jerk and creating a toxic environment Um, I think it's uh, we should all try to do what we can to make film and television a really not toxic landscape because we're not saving lives. We're just making entertainment. And sometimes it can be entertainment that is impactful and can change things. But at the end of the day, it it shouldn't be anything that people are acting awful about.
0: Yeah, that is wonderful advice. And I hope that past you listens. Thank you. Kevin Eastwood. Thank you so much for joining us today. Where can our listeners find you on the social media?
1: Um, Well, I'm mostly active on Twitter and Instagram. I barely use Facebook anymore. There's that whole thing about getting Donald Trump elected that kind of put me off that as a platform. Uh, But I am on Twitter and I'm just at Kevin Eastwood. I should check.
0: I you are literally checking your. I'm Twitter at Kevin right
1: underscore Eastwood, and <laughs> I'm on Instagram at just I think at Kevin Eastwood. <laughs> Again, I don't. I know. love
0: the certainty there. We will include the actual handles in the footnotes for this episode. I guess.
1: Oh, it's it, it, Instagram is Kevin hyphen in Eastwood.
0: I oh, that's know. important. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, who knows? Maybe Kevin Eastwood and Kevin underscore Eastwood on Instagram also have interesting content.
1: Well, there is some brawler in the UK who's named Kevin Eastwood. So whenever I I, I don't Google myself, I try to avoid yeah. it. Yeah, it's a good habit. <laughs> but others have pointed out that if you Google Kevin Eastwood, it's mostly me. But and also this guy that's glassed somebody in some bar fight in London. So
0: wow! Don't mess with Kevin Eastwood. <laughs> Any of the Kevin Eastwoods. <laughs> so fun. I I knew this was going to be a good one and it was. So please come back. Thank and to you. you, our listeners, please come back. Please like and subscribe. Please leave us a review if you are so inclined. You can find us at www.yvrscreenscene.com. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram at yvr screen scene. I would recommend having just one single handle that you use across all the platforms. It does make it easy
1: I think they were taken. I think that's why why? I wouldn't have done it. (laughs) The the underscore and hyphen. The difference between those two is not by choice.
0: Okay, you say so. The YVR Screen Scene Podcast is hosted and executive produced by me, Sabrina Firminger, and it's produced and edited by Simon Firminger. We give special thanks to Tyson Braddock and Paul Firminger, or Family Business, for technical support, and to Dane Devalay for the original music. YVR Screen Scene is a division of Fish Flight Entertainment. Join us next time for another deep dive into Vancouver's dynamic film and television scene. And cut!